Well, I invite you to turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 15 and also uh, look at those same verses this morning. Before we read them and look at them, let's, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we uh, come to your word, uh, we're so thankful that you give us this great privilege of reading it, the great privilege of hearing it, and the great privilege of having time to think upon it. And we ask that as we attend to it, we wouldn't view it as we would any other book or novel or newspaper report, but would view it as the very words of life, would view it as authoritative for our lives, would view it as written by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would impress these black letters upon our hearts and change us by them through the work of your Holy Spirit, all for your name's honor and glory. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Right, John 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives. This morning, beloved Congregation of Hope and everyone listening, this morning, I want us just to notice three things out of the passage. Uh, first, the suffering king. Second, the sick church. Third, the confused ruler. So looking at Jesus, looking at the chief priests and the elders, the Jewish rulers, and then finally looking at Pilate. And as we begin, I want us to notice some Things about uh, Jesus, some uh, rather poignant details about Jesus are offered in this passage. He's repeatedly referred to as a king here in the passage. So verse 2, a crown of thorns was put on his head and arrayed in a purple robe. 
that's mocking him as a king. It's mockery, but it's interesting. They're still portraying him as a king. Verse 3, they mock him, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 5, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Verse 12, everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Verse 14, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And then verse 15, Pilate, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So one of the only things the Jews and Pilate actually got right in this issue of Jesus and what he, who he is is that he's a king. Pilate understands that they're saying Jesus is claiming to be king. The Jews understand that Jesus is claiming to be king, and he's being portrayed here as a king. Now, what's interesting about this king is that he's also, secondly, he's innocent. Jesus is not just portrayed as king, but he's innocent. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That's an understatement. <laughs> there is no legitimate charge that the Jews or any, other, or any Roman citizens have brought against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is verified by numerous other people. Matthew 27, 4, Judas Iscariot, I have betrayed innocent blood. Even his betrayer understood it. The chief priests on the Jewish Sanhedrin, Mark 14, 55, the chief priests on the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Pilate's wife, Matthew 27, 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous or innocent man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate's wife even understands, look, he's innocent. This is a righteous person. Pilate, John 18, verse 38, I find no guilt in him. Luke 23, 14 to 15, Pilate said, After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So this Jesus is being portrayed as a king, and he is just flat out innocent. His greatest, and we might think Jesus has enemies today. I don't think you'll find any bigger enemies of Jesus than during his day. And the people who hated him most, you think of a political campaign, how much dirt that your opponents dredge up on you and throw in your face, all sorts of dirt, right? Jesus' enemies had access to all the people Jesus has ministered to, they were able to follow him around and watch him, and they didn't have one single piece of evidence against him. Not one thing that could stick. They all recognized, unless we have false testimony, this man has done nothing wrong. He is innocent. He's also silent. This king is portrayed as silent. John 19, 9, Pilate said, where are you from? Now, we might have expected Jesus to say, from heaven, from my father, uh, I have no beginning, but he just falls silent, gave him no answer. Matthew records in chapter 26 and 27, Jesus remained silent. And then Matthew 27, 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This not giving an answer and this falling silent isn't like the three to five seconds that might seem like an eternity to someone who's like rapid fire accusing. Oh, they just fell silent for a few seconds. Yep, they're silent. They're, they're, they're being stubborn. 
It's silence that lasted so long that the gospel writers picked up on it and it amazed Pilate. Where are you from? Cricket, cricket, cricket. They're charging you with this. Do you have no response? Silence. Like a long, awkward, deadly pause. Jesus just falls silent. When it comes to getting himself off the hook, he has no interest in it. Isaiah 53, 7, likely fulfilled here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus is going to the cross. He's about ready to be slaughtered and he is not going to get himself off the hook. And then, so he's the king, he's innocent, he's silent, yet he's derided. Take a look at verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Verse 2, the soldiers struck him with their hands. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Again in verse 15, they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Here you have this king who's done absolutely nothing wrong. He's mocked, he's flogged, he's derided. Now this flogging is not the most severe kind of flogging that will occur just later after Pilate's rendered his verdict and then they scourge him, which is likely the most severe kind of uh, scourging where you just lay skin off your entire back and a lot of people actually die from that even before they're crucified. But what Pilate did with them here is give them a, a beating in the hopes that when he presents Jesus to the Jewish authorities, they'd have at least some compassion or pity on him. Look, he suffered enough. He's done nothing wrong. Just let it go. But Jesus is mistreated. Jesus is a king who's suffering, who's going to be crucified by his own people. His own people are pushing for this. And Pilate even had a hard time understanding this. Verse 19, 15, shall I crucify your king? <laughs> Being a king and being crucified don't go together. You can just, Pilate, should I, should, I, should I crucify a criminal? Sure. Should I honor your king? Sure. Should I crucify your king? Is that really what you were asking me to do? It's just unbelievable what kind of king Jesus is. He's not afraid of being rejected. He's not afraid of suffering. He's not afraid of undergoing all this shame. That's an incredible king. What kind of king allows people to mock him and beat him? What kind of king does not adamantly refute charges brought against him and demand the best defense lawyers in a fair trial when his life is on the line? Look, if you're a former ruler in a country, America, you have access to probably some of the greatest lawyers and you can afford them. Jesus has no one in his court, as it were, as his attorney. If he's a king, he can surely get a great attorney. What kind of king doesn't fight to be treated as innocent when he is innocent? What kind of king is at peace with and even inviting being treated like a, a criminal when he is in fact nothing but righteous? Only King Jesus. Look, our president or queen or monarch or king or supreme ruler, wherever we end up in whatever country we live in someday, may one day rule well and even be a Christian who serves as good as good as he or she can, that may indeed be the case. But there's only one king in the universe through whom all things were created. 
against whom all human creatures rebelled, who would suffer and die for those rebels, so we rebels could become his friends. This king is unlike any other. I want to ask one quick question here. What is your attitude? What is my attitude toward this king? Because what we're about ready to see in the Jewish leaders and also in Pilate, we're seeing the response to King Jesus. We're getting a lot of responses to King Jesus. What is your response to him? I hope as believers that we have enthroned him and we cherish and we love him like no other. There is no king in all the universe that will ever go to die for you and me to pay for our sins. There's no one even qualified to do it. And even if they were, they wouldn't. No king would die for people who hate him or her. No queen would do this. Love, this is love like you and I have never seen before. This is amazing. King Jesus, why do you continue to take it? Why do you continue to go through the mocking? Why do you let them, and he is letting them, put a crown of thorns on your head, dress you up in a purple robe before Herod in front of Pilate? Why do you let them do this? So we can be saved. So people like us who hate him with a passion by nature could become friends of God and have eternal life. But don't ever say that we want eternal life worse than our Lord wants us to have it. Because what we see in the life of Jesus, our true king, is that he wants us to have eternal life more than we ever could. He wants us in heaven worse than we want to be there. This is amazing love. Tremendous good news. What a savior we have. Now, I want us to take a look at, we can call the sick church. We might say, oh yeah, that's not the New Testament church. I totally get it. The sick people of God, these are the people who should have been looking for the Messiah, were looking for him, missed him. They had the Old Testament, but they were really sick and twisted. John 19, 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. For what were they killing Jesus? For raising Lazarus from the dead? for healing people for three years of his ministry, for all of his incredible teaching, not teaching as the scribes, quoting other scribes and learning from all these great rabbis, but just like plopped onto this earth and after his public ministry started after his baptism, teaching in an authoritative way, but in a way that was so winsome, so accurate, you couldn't refute what he was teaching. Are you going to crucify him for his incredible teaching? Are you going to crucify him for his compassion, for his great love for people, for his constant care and concern, and for his great miracles? If you thought about the charge for a moment that he is claiming to be the son of God and you thought back on his earthly ministry, you may conclude this, if you had any sense about you, that the only scientific, logical, reasonable explanation for who Jesus is, if you looked at his miracles and at his teaching and at his life without any sin, is that he has to be the son of God. He's not blaspheming. He's simply telling the truth. And if you looked at him, you couldn't say, here's a mere human being. No mere human being can raise Lazarus from the dead. No mere human being can do all these miracles. No mere human being can live so perfectly that his avowest, most Hateful enemies can find even one thing wrong with him, can't find even one thing wrong with him. Nobody is like that. No mere human being. 
They say we have a law, he has to die, he's claiming to be the son of God. And we look at that as the reader and we say, how are you so foolish? He is the son of God. How are you missing this? How are you looking at his whole ministry and concluding anything other than, of course, he's the son of God. But the Jewish leaders were so consumed with hate, prejudice. They obviously needed new hearts, which we all do by nature, by God's grace. But they wouldn't even consider Jesus as the Messiah. And they certainly weren't going to start giving Jesus a fair shake here and now. They want him dead, no questions asked. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw him after Pilate had had him beaten, probably a little bit bloodied, a little bit bruised up, a little bit pounded up, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Matthew 26, 3-5, the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. They wanted him dead, they just wanted to get the timing right. But make no mistake, they just wanted Jesus dead and gone. They were just as cowardly as Pilate. Verse 6, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. Just go do it. Now, they couldn't legally do that, but look, if you want him dead that bad, then just go do it. Go crucify him yourself. Own up to this. You may spend time in jail, but if he's really that bad, either stone him or crucify him. Come on, take, take it up. Get him, out of my, get him out of my place. You guys can go handle this. Do your own dirty work. If you want it that bad, then start putting your money where your mouth is. Start walking the walk rather than just talking the talk. The chief priests and Jewish leaders were just very power-hungry, manipulative, politically inclined people doing whatever they can to stay in power and live a privileged life. And you can hear that clearly in verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. This is maybe the epitome of irony by John. God is their king. Theologically, every Jew would have said, indeed, God is our king. They lived in a theocracy where God is king. But here they say they have no king but Caesar. And this, is, this just beats all. Of all the things that any Jew would have ever let come out of their mouth, they would have never said this. We have no king but Caesar. They couldn't stand Caesar. They hated Jesus even more. J. Michael Ramsey, a commentator, said, not content with rejecting Jesus, the Jews reject their own Jewishness by that comment, we have no king but Caesar. Their bold words, we are Abraham's seed and have never been in slavery to anyone, now ring more hollow than ever. They were slaves to Rome. They were slaves to the devil. They were slaves to their own positions and power. They just didn't want to give it up. Leon Morris said they expressed the real truth. Their lives showed that they gave no homage to God. The truth was that they had no king but Caesar. And it is the chief priests, the religious leaders, who utter such words. Don't let, us, don't let this pass us by too quickly. Who is saying we have no king but Caesar? The chief priests, the religious leaders are saying this. The leaders of the church. The leaders of the Old Testament people of God. We don't have any king but Caesar. But this is fascinating. This is horrible. This is sick and wrong. Beloved, we as a new covenant church will be confronted with the same difficulties that they had to work through. Namely, what do we say of Jesus? It's very easy for the church today to become legalistic, manipulative, uncaring and unconcerned about justice, even fair trials for Jesus, completely missing Jesus, and nothing more than a political 
arm of society. Politicians love Christians, right? Why? Because they can use us as a voting block and convince us how to vote. And we as a church oftentimes just go with it, which makes us in many ways no different than the Jewish leaders. We have no king but Caesar. We just want to make sure we stay in power. A church is supposed to be all about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be in the business of conversion, spiritual growth, not politics and acquiring power for ourselves. This is what the Jewish leaders missed. Now, if we want to be involved in politics and we want to be involved in things that pertain to Rome and the United States of America, by all means, go for it. If the Lord's called you to that, locally, county, state, federally, go and serve well and glorify God in the midst of that office. But as a church, we have to understand that what has God given the church to do? Proclaim Christ, administer the sacraments, love people, worship him. What has God given the church to do as an organization? Very simple tasks. Keep on proclaiming Christ. Keep on administering the sacraments. Administer discipline. Disciple people. Get folks ready to die. And a church which aligns itself with political power and kingdoms of this world rather than with Jesus Christ and his kingdom is a sick, lost church. There will always be churches which lose their way and veer off into thinking that the best service the church can offer to God is by political changes. But the Bible is very clear that the best service we can offer to God is by heart changes through the word of God. Let's make sure we don't go astray on this as a congregation here at Hope. Almost unbelievable to think that for thousands of years, the Jews have been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come and he shows up. And all they can think about is, we don't want to lose our positions of power. How are we doing in this world? Are we content to suffer with Jesus? Are we on board with, are we excited? Would we even find it a joyous trial to find ourselves in a position of weakness as believers? No longer in power, no longer with a seat at the table, but just entirely discarded by Rome? Or do we cling to political power like the Sadducees are, like the chief priests are, like the members of the Sanhedrin are, rather than cling to Jesus. Finally, the confused ruler, Pilate, had Jesus flogged. Again, not the most severe scourging, but a beating nonetheless, enough to bang Jesus around so that when he presented Jesus to the Jews, they could hopefully be moved to say, wow, he's actually done nothing wrong. He's pretty banged up. We should just let him go. So Pilate had Jesus flogged for no reason. Look, Luke 23, 15, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Catch the irony in that verse. If nothing deserving of death has been done by him, why did you punish him before you released him? You should have just released him. But he's trying to get the Jews off his back. Pilate wants Jesus out of his life. He does not want to have to deal with this individual anymore. He's, a, he's cowardly. He's doing everything he can to get Jesus out of his life, including when he heard that Jesus was a Galilean, Herod's ruler over Galilee. I will send Jesus over to Herod. Now, John doesn't record that. What's Pilate doing? I don't want to have to make a decision about this guy. I don't want to be politically involved. I don't want my position to have to take a hit, my political career. Herod, he can make a decision about him. Awesome. That's wonderful. I mean, I imagine the look on Pilate's face when Jesus came back from Herod after Herod found nothing wrong, thinking... I, I can't get rid of him. How does this work? How can I get him off my hands? So he presents 
Jesus to the Jews and says, Behold the man. Behold, here's the one that you're telling me is some sort of major king who's a threat to Caesar. Look at this man. I just beat him up. He's a little bloodied. We're mocking him. He's got a crown of thorns. He poses no threat. Just behold this man. Look at him. Behold him. Again, no pity from the Jews. All they do is respond with, crucify him. Then Pilate told them, look, take him yourselves, crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. And then the Jews drop, not the biggest bomb, but the second biggest one. The biggest one will come in just a few verses. They drop a big bomb on Pilate. Verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Okay, well, now we're in a whole other realm. Now, all of a sudden, Pilate is afraid. Did you catch that verse 8? When Pilate heard this statement that he's made himself the son of God, he was even more afraid. Now, Pilate's starting to sober up a little bit. Okay, time to wake up. He's claiming that he's the son of God. In all the years, let's just walk through Pilate's mind. He's heard about this Jesus, no doubt. In all the years that I've served as Roman ruler over this jurisdiction, this area, I've heard about Jesus. I know he's done lots of miracles. He's raised people from the dead. He's taught tons of love, tons of compassion, tons of people healed. Yeah, he's a big deal. They have nothing against him at all. Perfectly innocent. He knows that these people hate Jesus. He knows there's nothing against Jesus. He's ready to release him. So now from a man who's never lied, from, from Jesus who's never done anyone any wrong and only all good, he hears that Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. And Pilate, you can almost hear the thoughts, well, he probably is. What have I done? I just flogged him. I just beat him up. What, he, he's starting to get afraid. And then couple that with his wife's dream, have nothing to do with that innocent man. I've had a lot of pain and difficulty on account of him. He's piecing all of this together. And all of a sudden, he is scared out of his boots. If this man who is far and away above reproach in his speech and conduct claims to be the son of God, then he probably is. What will the gods do to me now? How is my life going to go? Superstitious fear. What's going to become of me? J.C. Ryle wrote regarding this. In this verse, we see Pilate in a different frame of mind. This new charge of blasphemy against our Lord threw a new light over his feelings. He began to be really frightened and uncomfortable. The thought that the meek and gentle prisoner before him might after all be some superior being and not a mere common man filled his weak and ignorant conscience with alarm. What if he had before him some God in human form? What if it should turn out that he was actually inflicting bodily injuries on one of the gods? As a Roman, he had doubtless heard and read many stories drawn from the heathen mythology of Greece and Rome about gods coming down to earth and appearing in human form. Perhaps the prisoner before him was one. The idea raised new fears in his mind. Already he had been made very uncomfortable about Jesus. Our Lord's calm, dignified, and majestic demeanor had doubtless made an impression. His evident innocence of all guilt and the extraordinary malice of his enemies whose characters Pilate most likely knew well, had produced an effect. So Pilate went to Jesus. He's got to get to the bottom of this. Where are you from? Now, mocking's gone, sneering's gone, dismissiveness is gone. He's afraid. Where are you from? 
I, I, I got to know what's your origin. You're from another planet, you're from another world. Where are you from? And that's when Jesus just fell silent. Pilate's in a predicament. He is just one troubled individual. He doesn't have any idea what to do. He is between the biggest rock and the biggest hard place. He doesn't know where to turn. And then he just ups the ante, verse 10. You won't speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't, don't you know who I am? Come on, work with me here. Just threatening him with his position. Don't you know that I can let you off the hook or I can get you crucified? Trying to force Jesus to, to spill his guts. Where are you from? And Jesus sets Pilate straight on the matter in verse 11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Now, again, you're Pilate. What did you hear Jesus say? You would have no authority unless it was given you from above, from your chain of command, from Caesar. That's probably what Pilate heard. But we, the reader, and Jesus knows, oh, my father's given you this authority. That's why you can crucify me. You've just got authority from my father because I've got to go to the cross. And therefore he, likely Caiaphas, who delivered Jesus over to Pilate, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus puts Pilate in perspective, both politically and ultimately. You need Caesar to accomplish this. You need my father to accomplish. Pilate, you're just a pawn. Uh, that's, Pilate's saying, you don't, do, you, do you know who I am? I've got power to let you go. Jesus says, yeah, I know who you are. You're really kind of just a nobody in this whole process. Kind of setting Pilate straight. And then Pilate tries again to release Jesus. Did you catch that? Now he's set to release Jesus. He tries again. He's just, I gotta get, I, I gotta release this guy. I gotta find a way. So he's on a diehard mission. He's gonna give it one last chance. And then when he tries to get rid of Jesus, one last time to release him, the Jews cry out, and here's the atomic bomb. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That's the atomic bomb. After that, you'll notice what, what, what Pilate does. You catch what he does? He just goes and finally sits down. Okay, they, I'm, I'm not touching that one. I'm not getting investigated by Caesar. Uh, on one occasion, separate from this, when Pilate had brought Roman shields into Herod's palace in violation of Jewish law, the Jewish leaders threatened to report the matter to Emperor Tiberius. And Philo reports this of Pilate. Pilate fears that if they actually sent an embassy, they would also expose the rest of his conduct as governor by stating in full the briberies, the insults, the outrages, and wanton injuries, the executions without trial, constantly repeated, the ceaseless and supremely grievous cruelty. Put simply, Pilate would do anything to avoid crucifying Jesus except risk attracting Caesar's attention. He would do anything. He's been trying everything. But the atomic bomb that the Jews knew, they had a bad relationship with Pilate, bad blood both ways. They knew, we bring Caesar into the mix, he'll bow. And Pilate did bow. And it was over after that. And if you take a look at verse 13, Pilate doesn't waste any more time. None. Look at what he does. So when Pilate heard these words, what did he do? He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. Pilate should have been sitting there the whole time, by the way. He went down, sat on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. 
He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And that was all it took for Pilate. Done. I'm not going to compromise my position as governor. These words read like a weighty, solemn news report. Catch how John's writing it. Like the day a judge comes in from the jury room with the jury's verdict and a reporter says on August 23, uh, 2022 at 8.59 p.m., judge so-and-so came out and read the jury's verdict. He sat in the judge's seat when he did this and here is the verdict. That's how John's recording this. Pilate finally lays down a verdict and off we go. Now, what do we do with Pilate? A few things I want us to think about. Pilate is stuck. He's confused. I don't know if you caught it, but you can see Pilate's confusion fairly clearly with his feet. A few people have noticed this. I think there's something to it. Someone in Pilate's position should be sitting down on that judgment seat from the very beginning, hearing evidence, and everyone should be coming to him. Instead, Pilate the ruler in charge is running back and forth trying to find the middle ground between unbelief and belief. Let me, let me read you a few verses. John 18, 29, Pilate went outside to them. John 18, 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. John 18, 38, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews. 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus. He went inside to get him. John 19, 4, Pilate went out again. John 19, 9, he entered his headquarters again. 19, 12, Pilate went back out to the Jews again. Get the picture. Pilate is just, he is in a tough spot. And he is like this person, frantic almost, inside. Not, not showing this outside necessarily. I've got to figure this out. He could have just sat on his seat like he would any other trial, let people approach him, and in a position of authority, he will deal with this. But Pilate is running back and forth, trying to navigate this. And he can't find the middle ground between honoring and serving and worshiping Jesus and pure unbelief, which hates Jesus Christ. You can hate Jesus and refuse to give him his due and rebel against him in unbelief, or you can believe in him and bow down to him and serve him, but those are the only two options. There's no in-between, and Pilate is finding that. How can I be indifferent to Jesus, let him fade off into the sunset so I can be left alone? You can't you got to say something about him. You young people should know this. We have lots of young kids, grade school, junior high, high school. You're about ready to go out into the world and serve the Lord in whatever ways he calls you to serve him and, and serve the king. It's a great privilege and an awesome responsibility. But you're called to enthrone Jesus in your heart and make him number one. If you go out into the world and you're just friends with Jesus, meaning he's a nice guy, and he's okay, and I like his advice. I take it every now and then. It was pretty good advice, his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, etc. And that's your relationship with the Lord Jesus. The world will have pretty much no problem with you. When you go out into the world, you'll discover that if you love this Lord Jesus Christ, and you serve him, and you will obey him unconditionally no matter the cost. The world will have a big problem with you. And you need to figure it out which one it is you're going to do. Because you can't walk down the middle. You can't say, yeah, Jesus is okay. Now, the Lord Jesus won't let you do that. That's not an option. 
Either you hate him, you rebel against him, you try and earn your own salvation, self-righteous like the Jews did, or you love him and you worship him as God, God in the flesh, the king of kings, the suffering king, the king who's going to come in glory one day. But there's no middle ground. And if you don't believe me, just look at Pilate, the one who's responsible for getting Jesus to the cross. And right now in this life, every single human being is given opportunity to render their verdict about Jesus. We get to sit on the judgment seat, right? Pilate's on the judgment seat. He renders a verdict. We all get to do that right now. Meaning every human being renders a verdict about Christ, right? You and I as born-again Christians say we believe he's Lord. Yeah, we love him. He saved us. We're his. We belong to him. We're his slaves. We will serve him until the day we die. His blood has purchased us. We are children of God. We are in. We have eternal life because of him. He's my Lord and Savior. He is my master. And there are other people in the world, whether they've never heard or they've heard and rejected, who say, no, he's not my king. But there's going to come a day when we're not sitting on the seat, as it were, but Christ is on the seat and he comes in judgment. And it doesn't matter what we say. He's the one on the judge's seat. And he says, what do you say about me? And so I want all of us to get this straight. For every one of us in this room. And the biggest heartbreak for any single person who's a member of a church all around the globe would be not to have been forced as we walk through the Bible to think clearly and deal with this one issue. What do we say of Jesus? I'm guessing none of us would say, oh, we hate him. But how many of us are like Pilate? Yeah, he's okay, but I just don't want him to take over my whole life and lose my positions of power and have my life be a little bit inconvenient or really inconvenienced because of this king. Like, can I just have this kind of distant relationship with him? No, it's the same as hating him. I hope we can all sort through this and get this straight in our hearts and lives. And then one more thing about Pilate, he's more concerned with his status as governor than he is with finding out the truth about Christ. And let me just finish with this. You know, if when we believe in Jesus, it's life-changing in the sense that we can no longer live in this world in clear conscience, in righteousness and holiness, thinking first about, I've got to take care of me. As soon as we say, Jesus is my Lord, beloved, that means something. That means he's in charge of everything. It means it will cost us. Would it cost Pilate to have said, you are king? Yep, you are the king of kings and lord of lords. Absolutely, it would have cost him. Would have cost him a lot. Maybe he would have ended up being crucified himself or at least lose his position. Will it cost us to follow Jesus? Yes, it will. Are we willing to embrace that cost? Every one of us, it'll cost us something different, right? We all have different vocations, different callings, different areas we serve in. The cost is going to look different. But it's a cost worth embracing. Eternal life is coming. And let none of us think that what we have to suffer on account of following Jesus, what all compared to what he suffered in making us followers of his. He went all the way to the cross. Behold your suffering king. Behold the king that did all this for you and me. Now, what cost would any of us in our right mind say is too much to bear? Too much to go through for 70 years. 
in order to have eternal life, praising him and all of his greatness. Let's pray.